Hello, Wild Wanders, and welcome to our wicked window of the internet. Won't you pour yourself a cup of your best tea, light a candle to stave away the darkness, and cozy up as we tell you a story? Wittershins is a weekly podcast where we will dive into dusty bookshelves and winding darkened pathways looking to stories from folklore, fairy tales, mythology, legend, and beyond. We are accompanied by our trusted bard and guitarist, Joe Saborin, who will be live composing for us as our characters find their way out of the thickets and snarls of their tales. My name is Ashley Nunez, and I will be your narrator to peer over bough and branch, following our heroes and foes into far distant lands, both familiar and unknown. Let us begin Once Upon a Time. The Phantom Coach by Amelia Edwards The circumstances I'm about to relate to you have truth to recommend them. They happened to myself, and my recollection of them is as vivid as if they had taken place only yesterday. Twenty years, however, have gone by since that night. During those twenty years, I have told the story to but one other person. I tell it to you with a reluctance which I find it difficult to overcome. All I entreat, meanwhile, is that you will abstain from forcing your own conclusions upon me. I want nothing explained away. I desire no arguments. My mind on this subject is quite made up. In having the testimony of my own senses to rely upon, I prefer to abide by it. Well... It was just 20 years ago, and within a day or two of the end of the grouse season, I had been out all day with my gun and had no sport to speak of. The wind was due east the month, December, the place a bleak, wide moor in the far north of England, and I had lost my way. It was not a pleasant place in which to lose one's way with the first feathery flakes of a coming snowstorm just fluttering down upon the heather and the leaden evening closing in all around. I shaded my eyes with my hand and stared anxiously into the gathering darkness where the purple moorland melted into a range of low hills some ten or twelve miles distant. Not the faintest smoke wreath, not the tiniest cultivated patch or fence or sheep track met my eyes in any direction. There was nothing for it but to walk on and take my chance of finding what shelter I could, by the way. So I shouldered my gun again and pushed wearily forward, for I had been on foot since an hour after daybreak and had eaten nothing since breakfast. Meanwhile... Snow began to come down with ominous steadiness, and the wind fell. After this, the cold became more intense, and the night came rapidly up. As for me, my prospects darkened with the darkening sky, and my heart grew heavy, as I thought how my young wife was already watching for me through the window in our little inn parlor, and thought of all the suffering in store for her through this weary night. 
We had been married four months, and having spent our autumn in the Highlands, we're now lodging in a remote little village situated on the verge of the great English moorlands. We were very much in love, and of course, very happy. This morning when we parted, she had implored me to return before dusk, and I had promised her that I would. What would I have not given to keep my word? Even now, weary as I was, I felt that with a supper, an hour's rest, and a guide, I might still find to her before midnight. If only guide and shelter could be found. And all this time, the snow fell and the night thickened. I stopped and shouted every now and then, but my shouts seemed only to make the silence deeper. Then a vague sense of uneasiness came upon me, and I began to remember stories of travelers who had walked on and on in the falling snow until, wearied out, they were to lie down and sleep their lives away. Would it be possible, I asked myself, to keep on thus through all the long dark night? Would there not come a time when my limbs must fail and my resolution give way, when I too must sleep the sleep of death? Death, I shuddered. How hard to die just now, when life lay all so bright before me. How hard for my darling, whose whole loving heart. But that thought must not be born. To banish it, I shouted again louder and longer, then listened eagerly. Was my shout answered? Or did I only fancy that I heard a far-off cry? I hallooed again and again. The echo followed. Then a wavering speck of light came suddenly out of the north, shifting, disappearing, growing momentarily nearer and brighter. Running towards it at full speed, I found myself, to my great joy, face to face with an old man and a lantern. Thank God was the exclamation that burst involuntarily from my lips. Blinking and frowning, he lifted his lantern and peered into my face. What for? growled he sulkily. Well, for you, I began to fear I should be lost in the snow. Eh, then folks do get cast away hereabouts from time to time, and what's to hinder you from being cast away likewise if the Lord's so minded? If the Lord is so minded that you and I shall be lost together, friend, we mustn't submit, I replied, but I don't mean to be lost without you. How far am I now from Dwolding? A good twenty miles, more or less. In the nearest village? The nearest village is Wyke, and that's twelve miles to the other side. Where do you live, then? Out yonder, said he with a vague jerk of his lantern. You're going home, I presume? Maybe I am. Then I'm going with you. The old man shook his head, rubbed his nose reflectively with the handle of the lantern. It ain't no use, growled he. He won't let you in, not he. We'll see about that, I replied briskly. Who is he, the master? Who is the master? That's not to you, was the unceremonious reply. Well, will you lead the way, and I'll engage the master shall give me shelter and a supper tonight. <laughs> you can try, I muttered the reluctant guide, and still shaking his head, he hobbled, gnome-like, away through the falling snow. A large mass loomed up presently out of the darkness, and a huge dog rushed out, barking furiously. "'Is this the house?' I asked. "'Aye, it's the house. Down bay!' And he fumbled in his pocket for the key. 
I drew up close behind him, prepared to lose no chance of entrance, and saw in the little circle of light shed by the lantern that the door was heavily studded with iron nails, like the door of a prison. In another minute, he had turned the key, and I had pushed him past into the little house. Once inside, I looked round with curiosity and found myself in a great raftered hall, which served apparently a variety of uses. One end was piled to the roof with corn, like a barn. The other was stored with flour sacks, agricultural implements, casks, and all other kinds of miscellaneous lumber, while from the beams overhead hung rows of hams, flitches, and bunches of dried herbs for winter use. In the center of the floor stood some huge object, gauntly dressed in dingy wrapping cloth, and reaching halfway to the rafters. Lifting a corner of the cloth, I saw to my surprise a telescope of very considerable size mounted on a rude, movable platform with four small wheels. The tube was made of painted wood, bound round with bands of metal rudely fashioned speculum so far as I could estimate its size in the dim light measured at least 15 inches in diameter. While I was yet examining the instrument and asking myself whether it was the work of some self-taught optician, a bell rang sharply. That's for you, said my guide with a malicious grin. Yonder's his room. He pointed to a low back door at the opposite side of the hall. I cross-wrapped somewhat loudly and went in without waiting for an invitation. A huge, white-haired old man rose from a table covered with books and papers and confronted me sternly. Who are you? said he. How came you here? What do you want? Uh, James Murray, barrister at law, on foot across the moor, meet, drink, and sleep. He bent his bushy brows in a portentous frown. Mine is not a house of entertainment, he said haughtily. Jacob, how dare you admit this stranger? I didn't admit him, grumbled the old man. He followed me over to the mirror and shouldered his way in before me. I'm no match for a six foot two. And pray, sir, by what right have you forced an entrance into my house? The same by which I should have clung to your boat if I were drowning the right of self-preservation. Self-preservation. There's an inch of snow on the ground already, I replied briefly, and it would be deep enough to cover my body before daybreak. He strode to the window, pulled aside a heavy black curtain, and looked out. It is true. He said, You can stay if you choose till morning. Jacob, serve the supper. With this, he waved me to a seat, resumed his own, and became at once absorbed in the studies from which I disturbed him. I placed my gun in a corner, drew a chair to the hearth, and examined my quarters at leisure. Smaller and less incongruous in its arrangements in the hall, this room contained, nevertheless, much to awaken my curiosity. The floor was carpetless, the whitewashed walls were in part scrawled over with strange diagrams, and in other covered with shelves crowded with philosophical instruments, uses of many of which were unknown to me. On one side of the fireplace stood a bookcase filled with dingy folios, on the other a small organ, fantastically decorated with painted carvings of medieval saints and devils. Through the half-open door of a cupboard in the further end of the room, I saw a long array of geological specimens, surgical preparations, crucibles, retorts, and jars of chemicals, 
while on the mantel shelf behind me amid a number of small objects stood a model of the solar system, a small galvanic battery, and a microscope. Every chair had its burden, every corner was heaped high with books, the floor was littered with maps, casts, papers, tracings, and learned lumber of all conceivable kinds. I stared about me with amazement, increased by every fresh object upon which my eyes chanced to rest. So strange a room I had never seen, yet seemed it stranger still to find such a room in a lone farmhouse amidst the wild and solitary moors. Over and over again I looked from my host to his surroundings and from his surroundings back to my host, asking myself who and what he could be. His head was singularly fine, but it was more the head of a poet than of a philosopher, broad in temples, prominent over the eyes and clothed in very rough protrusion of perfectly white hair, had the ideality of much of the ruggedness that characterized the head of Ludwig von Beethoven. There were some deep lines along the mouth, the same stern furrows in the brow. There was the same concentration upon the expression while I was yet observing him. The door opened, and Jacob brought in the supper. His master then closed his book, rose, and with more courtesy of manner than he had yet shown, invited me to the table. A dish of ham and eggs, a loaf of brown bread, and a bottle of admirable sherry were placed before me. "'I have but the humliest farmhouse fare to offer you, sir,' said my entertainer. "'Your appetite, I trust, will make up for the deficiencies of our larder.' I had already fallen upon the viands and I must protested with the enthusiasm of a starving sportsman that I had ever eaten with anything so delicious. He bowed stiffly and sat down to his own supper, which consisted primitively of a jug of milk and a basin of porridge. We ate in silence, and when he had done, Jacob removed the tray. I then drew my chair back to the fireside. My host, somewhat to my surprise, did the same, and turning abruptly towards me said, "'Sir, I have lived here in strict retirement for three and twenty years. "'During that time I have not seen as many strange faces, "'and I have not read a single newspaper. "'You are the first stranger who has crossed my threshold for more than four years. "'Will you favor me with a few words of information "'respecting that outer world from which I have parted company so long?' "'Pray interrogate me,' I replied. "'I am heartily at your service.' He bent his head in acknowledgment, leaned forward with his elbows resting upon his knees and his chin supported in the palms of his hands. He stared fixedly into the fire and proceeded to question me. His inquiries related chiefly to scientific matters, with the latter progress of which, as applied to the practical purposes of life, he was almost wholly unacquainted. No student of science myself, I replied as well as my slight information permitted, but the task was far from easy, and I was much relieved when passing from interrogation to discussion, he began pouring forth his own conclusions about the facts which I had attempted to place before him. He talked, and I listened spellbound. He talked till I believe he had almost forgotten my presence and only thought aloud. I'd never heard anything like it. I'd never heard anything like it since familiar with all systems of all philosophies, subtle in analysis, bold in generalization, he poured forth his thoughts in an uninterrupted stream and still leaning forward in the same moody attitude from which his eyes, fixed upon the fire, wandered from topic to topic, from speculation to speculation, 
like an inspired dancer. From practical science to mental philosophy, from electricity to the wire, to electricity and the nerve, from Watts to Mesmer, from Mesmer to Reichenbach to Reichenbach to Swedenborg, Spinoza, Condillac, Descartes, Berkeley, Aristotle, Plato, and the Magi and mystics of the East, which were transitions, which were, however, spellbinding in their variety and scope, seemed easy and harmonious upon his lips as sequences in music. By and by, I forgot now by which link of conjecture or illustration, he passed on to that field which lies beyond the boundary line of even conjectural philosophy and reaches no man knows whither. He spoke of the soul and its aspirations, of the spirit and its power of second sight, of prophecy, of those phenomena which under the names of ghosts, specters, and supernatural appearances have been denied by the skeptics and attested by credulous of all ages. The world, he said, grows hourly more and more skeptical of all that lies beyond its own narrow radius, and our men of science foster that fatal tendency. They condemn as fable all that resist experiment. They reject as false all that cannot be brought to the test of the laboratory or the dissecting room. Against what superstition have they waged so long an obstinate war as against the belief of apparitions? And yet what superstition has maintained its hold upon the minds of men so long and so firmly? Show me any fact in physics, in history, in archaeology which is supported by testimony so wide and so various, attested by all races of men in all ages and in all climates, by the soberest sages of antiquity, by the rudest savage of today, by the Christian, the pagan, the pantheist, the materialist. This phenomenon is treated as a nursery tale by the philosophers of our century. Circumstantial evidence weighs with them as a feather in the balance. The comparison of causes with effects, however valuable in physical science, is put aside as worthless and unreliable. The evidence of competent witnesses, however conclusive in a court of justice, counts for nothing. He who pauses before he pronounces is condemned as a trifler. He who believes is a dreamer or a fool. He spoke with bitterness, and having said thus, relapsed for some minutes into silence. Presently, he raised his head from his hands and added with an altered voice and manner, I, sir, paused, investigated, believed, and was not ashamed to state my convictions in the world. I, too, was branded as a visionary, held up to ridicule by my contemporaries and hooted from the fields of science to which I had labored with honor during all the best years of my life. These things happened just three and twenty years ago. Since then I have lived as you see me living now, and the world has forgotten me, as I have forgotten the world. You have my history. It is a very sad one, I murmured, scarcely knowing what to answer. It is a very common one, he replied. I have only suffered for the truth as many a better and wiser has suffered before me. He rose as if desirous of ending the conversation and went over to the windows. It has ceased snowing, he observed as he dropped the curtain and came back to the fireside. Ceased, I exclaimed, start, starting eagerly to my feet. Oh, 
If it were only possible, but no, it is hopeless. Even if I could find my way across the moor, I could not walk 20 miles tonight. Walk 20 miles tonight, repeated my host. What are you thinking of? Of my wife, I replied impatiently. Of my young wife, who does not know that I have lost my way, and who at the very moment breaking her heart with suspense and terror. Where is she? At Wolding, 20 miles away. At Wolding echoed thoughtfully. Yes, the distance, it is true, is twenty miles, but are you so very anxious to save the next six or eight hours? So anxious that I would give ten guineas at this moment for a guide and a horse. Your wish can be gratified at a less costly rate, said he, smiling. The night mail from the north, which changes horses at Dwolding, passes within five miles of this spot, and will be due at a certain crossroad in about an hour and a quarter. If Jacob were to go with you at the moor, and put you in the old coach road, you could find your way, I suppose, to where it joins the new one? Easily, gladly. He smiled again, rang the bell, gave the old servant his directions, and taking a bottle of whiskey and a wine glass from the cupboard in which he kept his chemicals, said... The snow lies deep, and it'll be difficult walking tonight on the moor. A glass before you start? I would have declined the spirit, but he pressed it on to me, and I drank it. I went down my throat like liquid flame and almost took my breath away. It is strong, he said, but it will help to keep out the cold. And now you have no moment to spare. Good night. I thanked him for the hospitality and would have shaken hands, but that he had turned away before I could finish my sentence. In another minute, I had traversed the hall. Jacob had locked the outer door behind me, and we were out into the wide, white moor. Although the wind had fallen, it was still bitterly cold. Not a star glimmered in the black vault overhead. Not a sound, save the rapid crunching of the snow beneath our feet, disturbed the heavy stillness of the night. Jacob, not too well pleased with his mission, shambled on before in sullen silence, his lantern in his hand and his shadow at his feet. I followed with my gun over my shoulder, as little inclined for conversation as himself. My thoughts were full of my late host. His voice yet rang in my ears, his eloquence yet held my imagination captive. I remember to this day with surprise how my own over-excited brain retained those sentences and parts of sentences, troops of brilliant images and fragments of splendid reasoning in the very words in which he had uttered them. Musing thus over what I had heard and striving to recall a lost link here and there, I strode on in the heels of my guide, absorbed and unobservant. Presently, at the end, it seemed to me of only a few minutes, he came to a sudden halt and said, "'Yon's your road,' Keep the stone fence to your right, and you can't fail on the way. This, then, is the old coach road. Aye, it is the old coach road. And how far do I go before I reach the crossroads? Nigh upon three mile. I pulled out my purse, and he became more communicative. The road's a fair road enough, said he, for foot passengers, but twas over steep and narrow for the northern traffic. You'll mind where the parapet's broken away, close again on the signpost. It's never mended since the accident. What accident? Eh, the night mail pitched right over the valley below, a good sixty feet and more, just the worst bit of the road in the whole country. Horrible were many lives lost. 
all four were found dead. The other two died next morning. How long is it since this happened? Just nine years. Near the signpost, you say. I will bear it in mind. Good night. Good night, Sergeant. Thank ye. Jacob pocketed his half-crown, made a faint pretense of touching his hat, and trudged back to the way he'd come. I watched the light of his lantern till it quite disappeared, and then I turned to pursue my way alone. This was no longer a matter of the slightest difficulty, for despite the dead darkness overhead, the line of stone fencing showed distinctly enough against the pale gleam of the snow. How silent it seemed now, with only my own footsteps to listen to. How silent and how solitary. A strange, disagreeable sense of loneliness stole over me. I walked faster, I hummed a fragment of a tune, I cast up enormous sums in my head and accumulated them at the compound interest. I did my best, in short, to forget the startling speculations to which I had but just been listening, and to some extent, I succeeded. Meanwhile, the night air seemed to become colder and colder, and though I walked fast, I found it impossible to keep myself warm. My feet were like ice. I lost sensation in my hands and grasped my gun mechanically. I even breathed with difficulty as though, instead of traversing a quiet northern country highway or scaling the uppermost heights of some gigantic alp, this last symptom became presently so distressing that I was forced to stop for a few minutes and lean against the stone fence. As I did so, I chanced to look back on the road, and there, to my infinite relief, I saw a distant point of light, like the gleam of an approaching lantern. I at first concluded that Jacob had retraced his steps and followed me, but even at this conjecture presented itself, a second light flashed into sight, a light evidently parallel with the first and approaching at the same rate of motion. It needed no second thought to show me that these must be the carriage lamps of some private vehicle, though it seems strange that any private vehicle should take a road professed, disused, and, dis and dangerous. There could be no doubt, however, of the fact, for the lamps grew larger and brighter every moment, and I even fancied that I could already see the dark outline of the carriage between them. It was coming up very fast and quite noiselessly, the snow being nearly a foot deep under the wheels. And now the body of the vehicle became distinctly visible behind the lamps. It looked strangely lofty. A sudden suspicion flashed upon me. Was it possible that I had passed a crossroads in the dark without observing a signpost? And could this be the very coach which I had come to meet? No need to ask myself that question a second time, for here it came to the bend of the road, guard and driver, one outside, passenger, four streaming greys, all wrapped in the soft haze of light through which the lamp blazed out like a pair of fiery meters. I jumped forward and waved my hat and shouted. The mail came down at full speed and passed me for a moment. I feared that I had not been seen or heard, but it was only for a moment. The coachman pulled up, the guard muffled to the eyes in the cape and comforters, and apparently sound asleep in the rumble, neither answered my hail nor made the slightest effort to dismount. The outside passenger did not even turn his head. I opened the door for myself and looked in. There were but three travelers inside, so I stepped in, shut the door, slipped into the vacant corner, and congratulated myself on my good fortune. The atmosphere of the coach seemed, if possible, colder than that of the outer air and was pervaded by the singularly damp and disagreeable smell. I looked round at my fellow passengers. They were all three men and all silent. 
They did not seem to be asleep, but each leaned back in his corner of the vehicle as if absorbed in his own reflections. I attempted to open a conversation. How intensely cold it is tonight, I said, addressing my opposite neighbor. He lifted his head, looked at me, but made no reply. The winter, I added, seems to have begun in earnest. Although in the corner in which he sat was so dim that I could distinguish none of his features very clearly, I saw that his eyes were still turned full upon me, and yet he answered never a word. At any other time, I should have felt and perhaps expressed some annoyance, but at the moment I felt too ill to do either. The icy coldness of the night air struck a chill into my very marrow, and the strange smell inside the coach was affecting me with an intolerable nausea. I shivered from head to foot, and turning to my left-hand neighbor, asked if he had any objection to an open window. He neither spoke nor stirred. I repeated the question somewhat more loudly, but with the same result. Then I lost patience and let the sash down. As I did so, the leather strap broke in my hand, and I observed that the glass was covered with a thick coat of mildew. The accumulation, apparently, of years. My attention being thus drawn to the condition of the coach, I examined it more narrowly and saw, by the uncertain light of the outer lamps, that it was in the last stage of dilapidation. Every part of it that was not out of repair, but in a condition of decay... The sashes splintered at touch, the leather fittings were crusted over with mold and literally rotting from the woodwork. The floor was almost breaking away beneath my feet. The whole machine, in short, was foul with damp and had evidently been dragged from some outhouse in which it had been moldering away for years to another day or two of duty on the road. I turned to the third passenger, who I'm not yet addressed, and hazarded one more remark. This coach, I said, is in a deplorable condition. The regular mail, I suppose, is under repair. He moved his head slowly and looked me in the face without speaking a word. I shall never forget that look while I live. I turned cold at heart under it. I turned cold at heart even now when I recall it. His eyes glowed. With a fiery, unnatural luster, his face was livid as the face of a corpse. His bloodless lips were drawn back as if in the agony of death and showed the gleaming teeth between. The words that I was about to utter died upon my lips, and a strange horror, a dreadful horror, came upon me. My sight had, by this time, become used to the gloom of the coach, and I could see with tolerable distinctness I had turned my opposite neighbor. He too was looking at me with the same startling pallor in his face, the same stony glitter in his eyes. I passed my hand across my brow. I turned to the passenger of the seat beside my own and saw, oh, heaven, what uh, describe how I saw it. I saw that he was no living man, that none of them were living men like myself. A pale phosphorescent light, the light of putrefaction, played upon their awful faces, upon their hair, dank with the dews of the grave, upon their clothes, earth-stained and dropping to pieces, upon their hands, which were as the hands of corpses long buried. Only their eyes, their terrible eyes were living, and those eyes were all turned menacingly upon me. Uh.
A shriek of terror, a wild, unimaginable cry for help and mercy burst from my lips as I flung myself against the door and strove in vain to open it. In that single instant, brief and vivid as the landscape beheld the flash of summer lightning, I saw the moon shining down through a rift of stormy cloud. The ghastly signpost reared its warning finger by the wayside, the broken parapet, the plunging horses, the black gulf below. Then the coach reeled like a ship at sea, then came a mighty crash, a sense of crushing pain, and then... seemed as if years had gone by when I woke one morning from a deep sleep and found my wife watching by my bedside. I will pass over the scene that ensued and give you in half a dozen words the tale she told me with tears of thanksgiving. I had fallen over a precipice close against the junction of the old coach road and the new and had only been saved from certain death by lighting upon a deep snowdrift that had accumulated at the foot of the rock beneath. In this snowdrift, I was discovered at daybreak by a couple of shepherds who carried me to the nearest shelter and brought a surgeon to my aid. A surgeon found me in a state of raving delirium, the broken arm and a compound fracture of the skull. The letters in my pocketbook showed my name and address, and my wife was summoned to nurse me and Thanks to youth and a fine construction, I came out of the danger at last. Place of my fall, I need scarcely say, was precisely that at which a frightful accident had happened to the North Male nine years before. I never told my wife the fearful events which I have just related to you. I told the surgeon who attended me the whole adventure a mere dream born of the fever of the brain. We discussed the questions over and over until we found that we could discuss it with a temper no longer, and then we dropped it. Others may form what conclusions they please. I know that 20 years ago, I was the fourth passenger inside that phantom coach. Hey everyone, this is Ashley, your narrator. If you've been enjoying what you've been listening to with Wittershin Stories, we'd really love it if you could leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, follow us on Spotify, follow us on our social media accounts, whether Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook, and share us with your friends. We'd really love to get out there, and we have a lot more exciting things in the works, but we'd love to hear back from you. Wittershins is created by Ashley Nunez of Old Growth Alchemy and folk musician Joe Saborin in the presence of their curious cat Django, a few too many half-drunk cups of tea, and far too many begrudgingly half-completed art projects. If you'd like to follow along Joe and his musical machinations, you can find him at Joe Saborin Music on Facebook and Instagram or joesaborin.com. 
For more glimpses into the wild woods of story, botanical libations, and central ephemera, you can find me, Ashley, at Old Growth Alchemy on Facebook and Instagram or at oldgrowthalchemy.com. Or you can become patrons to us both on Patreon. Until next time, friends new and old, we'll be sure to keep the kettle on with a seat open for you by the fire. <laughs>